Today's Dead Idea, this is part two of our series on Moism and ancient Chinese leftism. Last time, we heard about the Moists' basic ideas and a whole lot about Warring States China. And today, we're going to hear about the hundred schools of thought, all the competing philosophies that were going on at the time, and then drill down deep into the Confucians and finally the Moists themselves, starting with the class differences that put them at odds with their bitter rivals, the Confucians. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, whose Moist diatribe against the Confucians at breakfast this morning just got cruder and cruder until at last she finally exclaimed, The Aristocrats! <laughs> the Confucians were actually mainly drawn from low-rung aristocrats. So <laughs> that's, that's why it's funny, folks. <laughs> the Moists definitely were not aristocrats for the most part. No. Much more working class in their philosophy. Anyway, we're going to go deep into all of that today. But first, we have a fake sponsor to plug. Ooh, our fake sponsor. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so we haven't really done this in a while. So listeners, if you aren't familiar with, we once a series, if we remember, we, <laughs> we like to pull some beer that we like or that's local and we want to support. And uh, we just kind of give it a quick review. And uh, we don't get any money for this. There, we are no, in we no way accept fil- money for it. We'll accept money for it, but they are in no way our actual sponsor. Right. They are our fake sponsor. So yes. who is our fake sponsor for today? Right. So I'd like to, uh, <laughs> to give some huge uh, props to Boom Island Brewery, uh, uh-huh. which is from uh, Northeast Minneapolis. Uh, unfortunately, I was not able to pick up any Boom Island beer for us to drink during the show today, so we, we are not actually enjoying it at this moment. But when planning the series, Brandon and I actually met up at the Boom Island Tap Room. Uh, it's both one of my favorite Belgian-style American beers. I mean, that's a, a lot of American beers try to be Belgian-style. Not that many succeed. I love Boom Island because it's just great beer. So wherever you are, see if you can find it. There and you if go. you happen to be in the Twin Cities, uh, really one of the coolest tap rooms. D- different vibe than most of the tap rooms in the Twin Cities. So check it out. Yeah. One of my favorite mango beers, mainly because I don't like mango <laughs> beers. And theirs was, the mango was very muted and I actually liked it. So yeah. They also anyway. have a great double go. and a great triple as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Boom Island. All right. There we go. Okay. So last time we introduced the Moists and in particular, they're peculiarly modern sounding notions such as universal regard or universal love or impartial care yeah. however there's a lot love of might be to... a bit strong universal yeah, really treating people like... the same yes yeah. universal universal them mattering to you <laughs> yeah. universal people are trash yeah so yeah. just just to recap super quick it's basically if we plop it into a modern day setting it's like when you see those like TV commercials about like some starving child in Africa and there's like, you know, flies on his face and they're asking for you to donate money or like sponsor a child or something. The idea from Moism is basically like that that should matter to you, even though that child is not your kin, right. not your village, not your, um, you know, state, not, not affiliated with you in any way all people should matter to you yeah. to some extent. You should care about that as if your own little brother was starving with flies in his face. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Not well, that radical an idea well, today. Well, actually, but... 
Actually, there's there's some nuance to it. Okay. Depending on who you ask.、Mm-hmm. So the Moists, being working class philosophers, tended to phrase their arguments in very bold and unnuanced ways. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. So many of the ways that they phrase things are like, no, treat everybody equal. Period. Right. right. So it's it does sound in many of their arguments like, if you give ten dollars to your child, you should give ten dollars to the kid in Africa.、Mm. You know, but. There are also other passages from later Moists that like walk that back a bit and be like, "Yeah, but two degrees, you know." <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, don't go crazy, folks. Right. Right. Don't bankrupt your family trying to feed. Yeah. So there's there's obvious there's obvious ways that it becomes unworkable when you get too extreme. Like if you're paying for your kid to go to college, you can't pay for every child in the world to go to college. Right. You just yeah, it doesn't work. Not gonna work. Yeah. However, there are also stories from like the Moist text. That make it sound like they were they were pretty extreme. So, for example, there was a high official that was a moist, and his son had committed some crime. I forget what, but the penalty was death.、Hmm. And the ruler offered to pardon the son out of deference for his moist advisor.、Hmm. But the moist advisor said, "No, he committed the crime. Anybody who commits that crime has to be punished for the good of society. You have to kill my son." Wow, and he refused to have his son pardoned.、Oof. You know, to stick to his guns of right, you know, universal. Not getting everybody pardoned over here.、So、yeah, this is yeah, right, right. So that was one of their ideas. Another big one being war only in self-defense, which,、mm-hmm. as we talked about last time, didn't mean they're pacifists. Yeah, they're not hippies. They're not hippies. <laughs> yeah, it's not make love, not war. It's make. Defensive war, not war. <laughs> Make only defensive war、yes. against the people who are aggressively using war. Yes, and because I can't say this enough, because、yeah. of that emphasis, because they believed only in defensive warfare,、yeah. they became very good at defensive warfare, and eventually were valued、uh, for the ability to make traps and siege defenses, and were sought out to help defend cities, which、yes. we'll get to next episode. Yes, next episode is coming. Yes,、yeah. yes. So teaser. Okay, so that that was the most right. And then we talked a lot about Warring States, China, and the the times. Which, just to sum that up, was basically in the way they read their histories. Their histories told them that things used to be great under the previous dynasties. First the Xia, then the Shang, and then the Zhou. But things degenerated to the point where, in Warring States, China, the very end of the Zhou Dynasty. Basically, it was just like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Practically, it was pretty practically. bad. It was hell on earth. Yeah. Yes.、Um, yeah. So, local lords had all the power. Wars crisscrossing, armies crisscrossing, bur- famine, famine, yeah, fields being burned in order to you know deny the enemy the food for it, etc.、Yeah. So, used to be good, got shitty. How do we get good again? Right. That was what was on the minds of. Young and thoughtful minds at the time in Warring States, China. And today, what I want to do is I want to go into what those more thoughtful minds thought,、Ooh. and how they thought we could get back to the good old days when this social paradise, meaning not some like yay everything is golden and we're led by a unicorn, not that <laughs> kind of like a paradise, but like things are stable, everybody knows their place. Just the whole society runs like clockwork. You know, everybody's got enough food. You can live out your life, and everything's just basically good. Yeah, that's what they wanted. But would they have accepted the unicorn deal if it was offered? 
I don't know. <laughs> there, there was a kind of uh, like East Asian yeah, unicorn like thing. Kirin, yeah, the right? Kirin that yeah. was th- called the uh, the giraffe of, of East Asia. That it's kind of a mythical creature, but right. they thought a giraffe actually may have been what they were referring to. Which is so funny anyway. because it doesn't. I mean, when you read the descriptions, you're like, that's a giraffe? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know quite how that worked out. But anyway, tangent. Yeah. So basically, they're living in a times when local lords were rip-roaring around, tearing up the place, doing donies in the parking lot, and just making life <laughs> bad for everybody. Chariot okay? donies? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that. So what were you to do if you were a young and thoughtful mind at this time? Well, you asked yourself, things used to be good. There must have been some reason for it. How can we make it good again? And as we heard last time, the way that they thought about the cosmos influenced how they answered that question. So they didn't think about heaven, or Tian, as being like a Judeo-Christian god where you can persuade and convince and conjole them into liking you again by begging forgiveness or whatever. Mm. They didn't think about Tian like that. Tian had something of a personality to it in that it had likes and dislikes, but it was much more like a natural force with consequences for certain ways of living your life. So if you did not live virtuously, as a consequence, things would go bad for your dynasty. Just like if you put your hand against the fire, it would get burned. So, these young thinkers started to think, how can we live such that the natural consequence of how we live is an ideal society? Right, yeah. Right? How do we make society here on Earth, in this life, in this world, better? In other words, they were looking to make society more peaceful, more peaceful, more wealthy, (laughs) more stable, and more successful for everybody. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So, as a consequence, if you were a student of philosophy in ancient China, you didn't double major in theology like you might have in the West. Instead, you double major in, like, poli-sci. Because what right. you wanted to do is get your ideas implemented by some lord hmm. to, to actually improve society. Which would then also show everybody that your ideas worked and build up your reputation as well. So it's a win-win. As well. It's, yeah. it, it was, it's practical. Yeah. But it came out of, you know, their ideas about the cosmos, so... That's kind of an interesting, you know, background to it. So the now, great thing about this is that at this time there were lots and lots of fractured small states which were in the process of getting gobbled up. Yes. Uh, so you had plenty, and the I mean the leadership was changing regularly at these places. So you had plenty of options to find a state that was willing to adopt your crazy plan for a couple of years. Generally, if you fell out of favor with one ruler, you could just go across the border to the next state and start applying <laughs> your trade. Freelance administrator. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. that's kind of how that's kind of what like Confucius. His life was right. like in some parts of his life. That's so, very true. And yeah. for many of I'm a little scholars. surprised that you wouldn't just be put to death if your policies weren't working out and you fell out of favor with the ruler. But well, it does seem like they would go from place to place and like try out different policies. I think you had to be smart about when to leave. <laughs> you, yeah. Yeah, right. Like you, you yeah. pull an Irish goodbye at just the right moment. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So what exactly were the ideas that you as a student of philosophy wanted these rulers to implement? Well, there was no end of ideas for you to choose from. So today I'm going to start by giving a sense of the schools that were around at the time as the early Moists, and because these would have been their competitors. Right. Okay. All of whom, of course, are less wise than the teachings of Grandmaster Mo. Yeah. And I don't quite want to give the impression that 
all of these preceded Mozza himself because the timeline is a little vague. Right. Exactly. Right. When, but during the first generations of Moists, these would have been right. the competing philosophies around. Okay? So, and, and after that, then we're going to go deep into the Confucians and then finally into the, the Moists. Okay? So, this was a time period that is now spoken of as the Hundred Schools of Thought. Okay? Wow. Because there is a lot of different... But there were like six, right? (laughs) There were a few big ones. No, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there were a lot more than just a few like we've heard of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you actually know any philosophers, like for every philosophy, there's like one person who believes in it. And then everybody else is like, you're not quite right. Yeah. Right. Let me start another one. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, there were lots of ideas around bubbling up. One school was called the naturalists. And this was the school that systemized the kind of folklore of the yin-yang and the five elements Hmm. into sort of a workable system. And they advocated following the patterns of nature as they saw it to get back to paradise. And so that's kind of where the yin-yang and that kind of thing that we know of now starts to get worked into Chinese philosophy. And let me ask you a question about this, right? Because now in the 21st century, when I think about like, uh, you know, the balance of yin and yang, and when I think about like uh, the five elements and all this kind of stuff, I I mean, just because of, of my cultural milieu, I kind of think of like this mystical stuff, right? Like you're, you know, you're using these things in, in rituals and you're calling upon these forces and you're trying to, you maybe use spiritual techniques to, uh, you know, to balance these things and whatnot. So like, was it like that? Was it a very mystical school or was it more just like the periodic table of elements? We're like, we've discovered af- these elements. I'm afraid I don't know at the time. I'm sure okay. it was almost certainly partly mystical because everything was. Was a little, then, right. Right. Yeah. Um, but I suspect that it was more scientific than we think of today at hmm. the time. Um, or at least it represented a, a a new edge of science for what where they were in terms of scientific development at right. the time. But see, the thing is, is after these schools get started and then they die out, then little bits of their stuff the get concepts. carried on yeah. by other schools who are interested in the tiny little bit of it. Right. You know, like yeah. the Taoists, for example, they're all about mysticism. So we'll take a little bit from Moism and a little bit from these naturalists and whatever works for us that has right. happens to be the more mystical part. Yeah. So anyway, the yeah. naturalists were around, right? With the yin yang and the five elements. That was one of the competing philosophies. Another, we heard a little bit about last time, the agriculturalists who actually agitated for an agrarian utopia, which was devoid of social classes. They thought everybody should be a farmer. End of story. Wow. Yeah. Was there any specialization? Like, we might need one physician for every hundred farmers, or... I don't know, because there's so little information I could find on the agriculturalists. I'm sorry. That's fair, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Another school was the legalists, who said pish-posh to the nonsense and advocated that, you know, the only way to get back to paradise is to ruthlessly impose harmony through strong (laughs) implementation of law. (laughs) Lame. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, this is the best one so far. This sounds most uh, most realistic. And it actually did get implemented too. Yes, it the did. Chin, the Chin Dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. But I. Oh man. I mean, it yeah. definitely doesn't have a good hook. I mean, I'm not sold. You yeah. Know? Right. I have to say, by the way, you're a really good host for this kind of thing, because uh, if I was the one presenting this, I, all of it sparks my imagination. So yeah. I'd have a whole like 
made up in my head, like, and so the elements were like this. Yeah. It's mystical. And well, I'm holding, my, I'm holding myself were. back from making a Planescape joke about how the how the, <laughs> the legalists were like the harmonium, but nobody in the audience is going. Oh in God. fact, I will I will uh, give some kind of bonus material to anybody who can tell me Free who portrait? the harmonium were. Yeah, actually, you can just Google it, so that's probably not a very oh, okay, good okay. contest. Right, right. Anyway, yeah. Google harmonium, apparently. Google the yeah. harmonium Planescape. Okay, so anyway, there were also the militarists, and this was headed up by our good friend Sun Tzu, who oh, yeah, wrote The right. Art of War. Mm-hmm. Wait, so this was like actual philosophy, like a school of philosophy? It wasn't just like a guy who was really good at strategy and wrote it down? Philosophy in the broad sense, oh, back it. then. Okay. Yeah. There were two varieties of diplomatists focused on diplomacy, and one of them said that the strong states should attack the weaker states in order to bring unity, like make everybody one. And another said that the small states should unite against the big states. And so it, it, it's philosophy very much in the, the broad sense right. where it includes all of the social sciences, maybe as we would think about Got it today. It. Yeah, right. And probably even the natural scientists, the naturalists in here too. Basically all science is philosophy in the ancient world. Yeah. There were the logicians, also called the school of names, who were basically linguists, and they thought that we could have social harmony if everybody could just agree on what all the words mean. Like, if everybody knows exactly what you mean when you say something, we'll just get along. Right. That was their idea. I see where they're going. (laughs) Yeah. So, you you know that kind of blogger, right? (laughs) Right. That was them. I I have a soft spot for them. I, I like their job. Fair enough. Yeah. Then, of course, there were also the Taoists, uh, who decided the hell with trying to get politicians to listen to you? That's a good way to lose your head because as soon as you fall out of their favor, it's like off with your head kind of thing. Hmm. So they thought instead you should drop out of politics and you know seek your own peace as a like a hermit. Ooh. Yeah, and okay. basically, yeah, they had like an analogy of like um, the crooked tree is the last one to ever get felled. It's the longest lived tree. Because it's of no use to anybody. People are going to chop down the straight trees left and right because you can make all kinds of things out of them. But the crooked tree lives the longest because it's of no use to anybody. And so you should be like the crooked tree. Wait, so you no should... ruler would want you as an advisor. <laughs> That's how you should be. <laughs> so you should zig and zag and flip and flop yeah. and like change your career path and, and your views and everything else so yeah. that you're just useless to everybody. Use useless to rulers. Got it. So that you can seek your own peace on your own. Beautiful. Yeah. Right. Because the crooked tree then can provide shade. I'm adding that. That's my own flourish. It's like yeah. now, okay, now you fine. can provide shade to others, but you won't be <laughs> cut right. down and make wood for the ruler. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, there were lots more, right? But of the of the like, you know, what do, what do they call it? The like the big five schools in the Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. Not, no, they're not even in the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. I don't know football. I don't know why I'm bringing in football as We should references. not use any sports analogies in this show. <laughs> yeah. Nobody here anyway, has the, yeah. For the big philosophies of the day, of course, there are also the Confucians and the Moists. So we'll turn to the Confucians now and go a bit deeper into them because they were the primary rivals of the Moists. Right. And the Moists hated them and the Confucians hated them back. Right? Okay. So the Confucians was, uh, they were, of course, founded by the guy that we all know as Confucius, which is a Latinized form of Confucius, which Confucius, kind of like that, yeah. right? And it just means Grand Master Kong. Yeah. In fact, he's often more often referenced as Kong Tzu, I hmm. think, in the 
the actual texts. Got it. It just means master call. Right. Yeah. Okay, so the Confucians, who actually called themselves Ruists, which means scholars or erudites, but we're going to continue to call them Confucians because yeah, otherwise it'll get confusing, <laughs> right? They're Confucians. Right. Also ventured a way back to get back to paradise, just like all these other schools. But it was a way that the Moists took one look at and just like, they just did like face palm in just like, how can you possibly think that this is going to help? <laughs> right? Excellent. So this is what they were reacting against. Hmm. And I'm going to intentionally be uh, controversial here. Excellent. Okay. I'm, I'm throwing like political correctness and sensitivity out the window for oh, a minute wow. because you're going to get, you're, you'll see why. Right? <laughs> I just want to paint the picture. This is how the Moists saw them. Okay. Okay. Okay, so basically, the early Confucians were cosplayers. <laughs> right? And I, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. Hmm. Because they really kind of were like this in the early Confucian days. Okay? So their basic idea was that there had been order and harmony in the Zhou dynasty in the good old days, several centuries ago, not the shitty days like now, which don't count, but in the real Zhou dynasty, when everything was great, right? Hmm. And how they knew that it was good in those old times was because they could read about it in their literature. They had, like, the chronicles, the histories, etc. And they had, like, the poems that they wrote. And a, a lot of the things that they were reading gave a very romanticized picture of, of the course. times, too, yeah. right? So they had this idealized picture of the past, clearly, hmm. okay? And um, specifically, this literature came to be what is now known as the five classics. And unsurprisingly, like I said, this gives a very romanticized view of what the past was like, but they thought if we could only have that again, everything would be good, right? So it's almost like if now today we thought, ah, oh, the 21st century sucks, and then we pick up a copy of Thomas Mallory's Arthurian romances, you know, the Mort d'Arthur, oh, right. and thought, wow, That's times were so be. good back then. Yeah. We should do medieval Britain again, and then <laughs> everything will be great, right? Right. So they were like, let's do that again. Let's do Zhou Dynasty for real again, hmm. right? And while there's nothing necessarily all that crazy about being inspired by the best parts of the past, the Confucians went a little overboard with their mimicry of the past. So the heart of their philosophy was that everyone has roles in society. And this part actually does, to me, make a lot of sense. Everybody sure. has roles in society. And as long as everybody just knows what their roles are mm -hmm. and does what you're supposed to do mm -hmm. in your prescribed roles, then everything will run like clockwork. There'll be no conflict. Society will be harmonious. And it'll all be like a big dance, mm -hmm. you know? And it'll just, it'll be good. And where do we get those roles from? Well, the Zhou Dynasty, obviously, when it was good. But then they're like, not just mm, in broad strokes, we'll take their roles. They're like, no, down to the hem of their clothing, you know, wow. mimic them in every way that we can. Right. So they go a little, <laughs> a little overboard. <laughs> so they're really, they're really just dressed in like Renaissance clothing. Yes, exactly. And they talk that way too. Is that right? Yes. Okay. They actually talked in archaic modes with words that nobody used anymore that right. were long out of date, right? It's like 
us talking about let us go now to ye old coffee shop and let us um, have good converse, you know, right? Good, intercourse, <laughs> good intercourse with <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let us yeah. have good intercourse about today's events. I know. feel like we are having good intercourse. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> podcastually speaking, only. Yeah. So wait. So my question about this, right, is yeah. that obviously sounds ridiculous to you and me, right? But I also am aware that there is this incredible reverence of the of the period of the Sage Kings mm-hmm. in China at this time. Yeah. So much so that even the Moists had to couch their arguments in terms of, oh, and by the way, the Sage Kings also endorsed this. Yeah. So was it ridiculous to people or did they look at this with a sense of like reverence? Like, oh, wow, you're doing it the, the right way. Like you're doing it the way it should be done. I don't think it was as ridiculous as it sounds to us at all. Okay. No, I think... Most of the people in ancient China would have been ready to sign up on things were good in the Zhou dynasty days. Obviously, the Zhou had it going on. Mm. And most of the schools of philosophy probably would have agreed, including the, like you say, the Moas would have agreed about that part, too. But it's how much do you take from them? Which aspects of the Zhou dynasty are going to help things, you know, get good again? Right. And which are just being a little pedantic you know so so that's i guess my question is like if if an average chinese city dweller saw i mean as, as happened in episode one like there's these two people disputing in the street yeah one of them is a confucian scholar if they saw this confucian scholar in these archaic robes speaking yeah. with thee and thou that then you know the ancient yeah. chinese equivalent of that yeah would they have snickered behind they kind of, kind of covered their mouths and snickered or would they have been like wow I can only speculate. Right. And my personal speculation would be that it probably would have broken down on class lines. Yeah. Because largely what the Confucians were emulating were what the aristocracy was like in the Zhou days. So. That makes sense. Yeah. The commoners probably would have been like, you know, same old, same old. I'm still having, you know, hard time feeding my family. Right. I don't care about your gongs. Right. You know, (laughs) I don't care that the hem of your robe is exactly this long. Right. You know, and that, you know. You know, all all, all the yeah. ceremonies, the exact way that people have to be buried. It's like, depending on how high your rank was in society, you had to be buried a certain number of layers of kimono and then in a certain number of coffins within coffins within coffins. And there were all these prescribed ways of doing things that were just... It was like the whole, your whole life was lived as if the entire thing was one big long tea ceremony. Right. And there was a way to do everything. Oh, that sounds really gross. (laughs) I guess I must be a Moist because I'm just like, wow, what a waste of time, you guys. Okay. Well, they were kind of two extremes that you you would want to find a little bit of a middle ground. Yeah. But in any case, that's what early Confucians were like. That's how Moists saw them Hmm. for sure. Okay. So they were kind of cosplayers. They were kind of LARPers. It was specifically a Reconstructionist religion. Wow. They were trying to imagine what it was like in the early Zhou dynasty and trying to do that again. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the Moists, standing by and watching these LARP sessions, <laughs> were like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? So here's an actual response from the Moists about the Confucians. And you have to imagine them watching one of their grand musical orchestras with great cast bronze bells that would have cost the, you know, the state, would have cost the state, you know, the equivalent of millions, if not billions of dollars. This is like, they're using their F1s and, you know, their stealth bomber, you know, money for gongs, you know, here, Right, right. right? Yeah. So here's what the Moists say. The people have three hardships. To be hungry and not find food, to be cold and not find clothing, to be weary and not find rest. 
These three things are a great hardships for the people. If this is so, then suppose we strike the great bells, beat the sounding drums, strum the lutes, blow the pipes, and brandish the shields and battle axes. Will this enable the people to find the materials for food and clothing? <laughs> that, that was their response. I love it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So basically, they were like, look, people are starving. There's armies all over hell, pillaging and wreaking havoc. And the average person is lucky to find a tattered robe to wear. And you guys think that you're going to fix all this with music. <laughs> and appropriately length robes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the historical context in which Moism arose. That's what they were responding to, what they were reacting against. Right. Okay. Now, to be fair to the Confucians, there was a whole lot more to their philosophy that gave it depth, that gave it rigor. But much of that was probably developed afterward in response to some of the Moist critiques. And if you read the early stuff, like the Analects of Confucius, there's really very little in there that you could call a developed argument. And it's all like so-and-so said such-and-such to who's it's what. And it's very difficult for us to suss it out. Hmm. So it wasn't really until Mencius and Shinza a few generations later who were responding to Moist blog posts like we had last time, right. you know, they're all titled like WTF Confucians, you know, that's like what they're responding. That's the name of the thread, right? It wasn't really until that point that the Confucians began to really become rigorous analytical thinkers, which they are now. Moists kind of contributed that to Chinese philosophy. They started coming up with reasoned arguments for the same reason, basically, because they had somebody that they needed to critique and argue against, hmm. the Confucians. So they had to come up with convincing reasons why, no, we shouldn't spend all this money on gongs. <laughs> so that's what they did. Okay, so now I want to turn to the Moists themselves. Great. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the Moist perspective on what we've been talking about, and then about its founder, Mozi, and the school as it developed. Okay. The Moist perspective on Warring States era China. Remember last time I mentioned that the presentation of the times that I was giving was skewed mm. and in a very particular way. And it's the way that Confucians definitely would have skewed it. And probably a lot of other people in ancient China would have skewed it as well. At least anybody who had enough education to be able to re be writing histories and reading them. But the Moists came from a little different you know, side of the tracks and they had a different perspective on the times. So the broad outlines are the same. It was certainly true that it was an era full of war and chaos and hardship, with massive armies marching across the land, and you were quite liable to lose your head in one way or another. And the Moists definitely saw it that way too, but it wasn't total civilizational collapse into Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Hmm. In fact, it was actually a time of economic expansion, oh. believe it or not. You see... Despite all of the states constantly vying against one another, they couldn't actually wage war ceaselessly because you just bankrupt yourself right away, right? So there was a lot of politicking that was kind of like not hot wars, but cold wars. Hmm. And they sort of naturally fell into a balance of power that checked each other. So you just, you, you couldn't make a lot of large gains, even though you're constantly vying, hmm. right? So there was a certain stability to be found it wasn't the same as what people thought they remembered from those romanticized early Joe times, but there was a certain amount of predictability that you could, you could, you could get a good trade route going. 
Yeah. And you, ha- you of course, states would make alliances, too. Right. And then, okay, great. Now I can trade with them, hmm. you know? So it was actually, believe it or not, a time in which merchants started to begin to flourish. Hmm. And merchants, uh, the sheng, as they were called, were the lowest rung of society. But because they started to be able to flourish, they started amassing a lot of wealth. Right. So you get a yuppie effect. <laughs> so you've got these lowest of the low who suddenly have as much money as some of the poorest of the nobility. Hmm. Okay. And the lower rungs of the nobility are called the shi. And this was what a lot of the philosophers of the day, they were drawn from the shi class, including most of the Confucians. Okay. The shi were the lowest ranks of the aristocracy, and they were the ones who traditionally had the exclusive right to ride around in chariots. So they were very important in warfare back in the good old days. Right. But by this time, chariots were on the out. They were still being used and still would be used for several centuries beyond that. But they were kind of like... I don't know, pulling out the, a warbird from several wars past, you know, right. and just be like, okay, we'll use it for like a transport mission now instead sure. of a bomber, you know. So the Shu were losing their military importance, okay? And they're starting to get major competition coming up in society by these yuppies, the Shang, okay? Not only that, but another class called the Nong, who were the farmers of Chinese society, they were becoming threats to them as well. Because in the good old days, in just like the kind of medieval style of thought that we think of from the West, it used to be the aristocracy that you counted on for your you know, major warriors and generals and things. Hmm. You know? But with all of the you know, wars and politicking and all that, just the fierce competition that was erupting in the Warring States period, rulers were starting to catch on that maybe I should fill my generalships with people who actually have military experience rather than somebody who's the son of so-and-so. Right, yeah. And consequently, they started plucking generals from the lower ranks of the military that were largely filled Hmm. by the Nong, the farmers. Oh. Yes. And although the farmers of ancient Chinese society weren't as, like, lowest of the low as you think of as like peasants and serfs in the west they were actually fairly respected Hmm. Uh, but they were still very much commoners um so if you're a shu right a a petty nobility you're you've got an identity crisis going on at this time nobody cares anymore that you have the hot car right your your camaro that used to be the best in high school (laughs) right is now just kind of like that clunky old Camaro in somebody's garage that's up on jacks. Everybody wants a Prius. Yeah, everybody wants a Prius, which is now like the cavalry. Yeah. Even though I think if we've now got our military history right, the stirrup wasn't quite invented yet, but still cavalry was becoming a big thing. It and was. chariots yeah. were on the So er, early cavalry was not great in China because you couldn't have heavy weapons and heavy armor. Yeah. Um, and then as the stir- when the stirrup was invented, you were able to have much heavier cavalry because they wouldn't get knocked off if they were using heavy stuff. So that was happening, you know, maybe the century after Mozu. Uh-huh. But it sounds like from everything we've read, infantry was getting improved. 
yep. the usefulness of chariots was on the decline yep. for a variety of reasons, not least of which is that they are just very hard to use because they have to be in very tight formation. The mm-hmm. terrain can mess them up. The enemy was coming, becoming wiser at ways of disrupting the chariots so that their formations wouldn't work. So yes. these were just declining in value. Yeah. yeah. So as a sh- you're no longer really valued as a military personnel. And what else do you got to like distinguish you from the commoners? Well, mm-hmm. you've got money. Well, that's not even that isn't really distinguishing you that much anymore because you got these, these damn merchant shawn, jerks. These merchant yeah. yuppie jerks <laughs> that are now like like threatening your distinction in society, right? So what is what's a guy going to do, right? So the other thing that distinguishes you as a petty nobility is a life of cultivation. You in your family has had enough money to be able to, you know, like give you an education, you can read, you've probably got a few books to your name or you have access to them. And so you have you then have the opportunity to capitalize on the one thing that you have left, which is scholarship. Hmm. And so the shu at this time period are transforming from a class of charioteers to a class of scholars. Hmm. Yes, because that's the thing that they're, they're going to put all their eggs in one basket now right. and be like, no, we're scholars. And and that, that's what makes us worth keeping around. Wait, wait so would they still and, ride in the chariot just for fun? Like just on the way to university? I'm sure they just did. Like, I mean, I would. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> but they weren't like asking for you to be the first guys into battle. I would, anymore, I would ride know? in the chariot and recite poetry from it as I roll through the streets on my way to the library. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... As a shu, then, you are the one that's in position to give a thoughtful answer to the problems of the day. Right. And so they're the ones who really start kind of like coming up with schools of philosophy. Confucius came from the shu class, right? Speaking of Confucius, remember that the whole shtick of Confucianism was times were good in the early Zhou days. Hmm, at exactly the same time you say... That the shu were on top. <laughs> How convenient for you. <laughs> right? Right, right. Yeah. So, a little connection there. Right, I like that. <laughs> okay, now the Moists, on the other hand, are looking at this, and they are not from the shu class. They seem to have been different. It's nowhere spelled out, but they their text makes a lot of analogies to like using tools, using compasses, using rulers, mm. all kinds of craftsman-y kind of things, yeah. artisan kind of things. So as far as we can tell, Mozu was probably from the Gong class of society, the craftsmen and the artisans. Hmm. And there is debate about that, but like I said, it fits with those the evidence of the metaphors that they use and stuff like right. that. Okay? And it certainly focuses a lot on engineering in a lot of areas. Yes. Yeah. And not surprisingly, they could draw on those talents as craftsmen for military defense. Right. Yeah. Too. Right. Yeah. So it also fits with, you know, kind of like they are, you know, are all about kind of frugality and moderation, which is values of necessity to poor commoner families, mm. you know. So you don't care about, you know, a whole orchestra of perfectly cast bronze gongs. Right. You never had that. Right. You know, your family never had that yeah. even in the good days. Not even the we good days. Yeah, care, right. right? We don't need that. Yeah. Right? So you're much more... Those are no more valuable than chariots. <laughs> <laughs> so the Moist twist on the Warring States period is this is actually a good time that if you were smart and you applied your trade well, 
you could make a decent scratch on a trade route. Hmm. You could, you know, offer your artisan skills constructing, you know, like siege engines and things to lords because there's no end of, of war where that would be, a, you know, a need. It's like times are crappy in terms of like stability and food and things like that. But you could kind of, it's also kind of when you could, you could reach 20th level in your, your chosen class right. in the game if you wanted to. Definitely there was enough adventures yeah. for you to get that many XP points. Oh, wow. You could, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. That's true because like with that lack of stability, there also comes a great deal of opportunity then. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's mm. the most twist on the Warring States period and its mm. disorder. Right. Okay. So wait, can I ask you a question? Yes. So do you have a sense, like, I mean... Because Mozu was clearly educated enough uh-huh. and potentially moneyed enough to be able to go around and pitch his ideas to rulers. So, I mean, would, a, would an artisan class person have had the capacity to do that? That's a good question. I figure they must have had at least some education, in, if not in a written form, but I suspect maybe even a written form. Yeah. But if not in a written form, then certainly you had like, um, what do I want to say? Like mentor, a mentor apprentice kind of thing that was passing on a body of knowledge that was to some degree you could call educated. Right. More than you needed to just be like a basic farmer, you know? Yeah. Because you needed to know a certain amount of physics. You needed to, you know, if you're going to like build siege engines, for example. So I'm sure it spanned the gamut again. Like you could be a very simple artisan that wouldn't need any of that. Right. But it was probably, I, I imagine that you could get a, enough education. That makes sense. That you could throw your hat in the ring. I have to say, I really like the idea uh, of the Moist as like artisans, engineers, quote unquote mechanics, because uh-huh. the next episode, the the defensive warfare episode yeah. is going to be very Joe punk. Uh-huh. And I just think that now that I can picture him in like an engineer's outfit with like grease smeared on him and he's got like crazy tools, it's even more Joe punk. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Excellent. All right. So let's talk about Mozu himself. Great. Okay. So Mozu was, or Mozu, to pronounce it as properly as I can, which is still <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Mozu was born in 470. BCE, which is just nine years after the death of Confucius. Hmm. So they completely missed each other, but not by much. Which is good because they would have just immediately just locked. (laughs) Yeah, it would have been like oil and water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He is of the next generation of thinking, which immediately followed Confucius and his kind. The supposed author of the, you know, just to give some context for who else was bumping about at the time, the Hmm. supposed author of the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu. Yeah may have been part of this generation, Mozu's generation. Mozu's generation. Wow. If he actually lived at all. He may have been entirely legendary. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. Other contemporaries of the time, Sun Tzu would have been, like, super old by the time Mozu is born. But he was, you know, in that rough era. Yeah. Yang Tzu, who we heard of as last time, as the kind of Nietzsche, like, Ayn Rand, kind of like self-interest guy. I'm not sure his time, his exact years, but influential, at least by hmm. Mencius's time. And he is referred to in the text of the Motsu. Okay, so that's just some of the contemporaries that are, you know, 
also driving around in in their Camaros and some of them, you know. <laughs> so wait, so that raises a question too. So yeah. do you think? Because I mean, we've seen this intense rivalry between Confucianism and Moism. Yeah. Was was part of that just generational? It's sort of like Confucianism is like your your parents' school of thought, yeah. and you're growing up, and you're like, screw that! I've got a better school of thought. Well, kinda. One one theory is that Mozu started out as an actual student of uh, oh. the Confucian path. Wow! And then was like, God, this I, I this. just yeah 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 I got there's got to be a better way. They're like trying to teach him about gong sizes and which one to use for which <laughs> he's occasion. Like, I don't he's doesn't like, matter. I'm not writing this down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not taking notes. No, on this to teach. <laughs> no. Like as soon as the exam is over, I'm forgetting all of this. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but an- but another theory is that no, he never even studied that. But there, it would have been of the times enough that if you were plugged into the philosophical circles of the day, you would have heard about it and been exposed to it. Of course. And, you know, given their their garb and their way of speaking and everything, if there was a Confucian in your town, you probably would have met them because yeah. they, would, they would stand out. <laughs> you would remember them for yeah, sure. You would remember them. They're I, memorable. I have one more question for you. Yeah. So I, I again, I love the uh, the theory that he mm-hmm. comes that Mozu comes from a uh, artisan background. Yeah. Have you, because one thing I see a lot when I read about him, and I mean, it's all like, oh, we don't really know exactly what his life story is. Yeah. The idea that he was uh, actually like a slave or a prisoner originally. Uh-huh. Have, uh-huh. Have, I mean, it sounds like the artisan theory has more weight. Can you tell us why? Well, they're mutually compatible. Okay. But, well, no, they're not. I get. Well, I don't know. Okay. So what I know of what you're talking about mm-hmm. is his his actual given name is Mo Jai. Okay. And the Mo part actually means like ink. Therefore, maybe it refers to... His skin was super dark from working in the field like a laborer. Oh, okay. Or maybe it refers to him having tattoos like a slave. Like it oh, was okay. markings that he was a slave. Like he would be branded, basically? Yeah. Okay. Which is super badass, which is why we should go with it. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows if that was true. Would that have been like, so then he was an escaped slave or like a redeemed? Like he got his freedom? It also, remember also, in the ancient world, slavery wasn't like it was in the United States. Right, right. For sure. You could, you could make pretty good scratch as a slave in the ancient world. Right. If you were the slave of... A, you know, a good enough master, hmm. you know, because they would support you and you weren't starving like the farmers who, right. yes, they had their own land, but it's a bad year and now they got nothing. Hmm. You know, you had somebody. Yeah. So if you're hooked up with the right household, you know, you could actually live pretty well as a slave in the ancient world. Hmm. You still didn't have your freedom and it sucked. Right. No, no taking that away. But being a slave wasn't the same as being um, an African-American during the days of slavery in North America. Right. right. Yeah. So. So I'm glad you brought that up because that was the next thing I was going to talk about. Mojai. Being, okay. Yeah. So anyway. it's not like it's not like it's been debunked. We just don't know. And the, the argument debunked, that that might be the case is kind of guesswork based on the linguistics of his name. I think that I think it was never more than guesswork. Yeah. Okay. It's it's still a valid possibility. Yeah. Yeah. He may have been a ma- native of the state of Lu, which is the same as what Confucius was, hmm. but later Moism seems to have become strong, especially in the state of Chu, which is in the south. So maybe he came from there. Again, hard to say. So Mozart's life is likewise full of conflicting accounts. So most popular, like we said, is that he was either an artisan or a laborer and possibly a wheelwright because there's there's one of the passages in the Mozart that refers to him being able to craft a wheel. So maybe he was a wheelwright. 
<laughs> I love the grasping at straws you right. have to do with ancient texts. Right. Yeah. And then there's the theory that you meant that we mentioned about like dark skinned or branded like a slave, but a different account actually makes him a bookish schoolboy hmm. who instead spent all day memorizing and reciting lessons. Wow. And so those are pretty much mutually contradictory. Yeah. And a late Taoist text written in the 4th century CE, so like 800 years later, even portrays him as a wandering immortal, riding the back of a dragon, transmuting one thing to another with the help of herbs and conjuring success in battle through magic. <laughs> so, uh, as, as a newly converted Moist, that's <laughs> the one that I think is most historically likely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one Taoist text called the Baoputsu uh, even describes such feats as using medicinals and talismans to fly, hide in extra-dimensional space, mm -hmm. turn into a woman with a mere smile, an old man with a twist of the face, a child by kneeling, or a tree by grasping one's staff. So, again, <laughs> going back to, you know, the Taoists being into mysticism and taking the little bits that fit with what they want. Right, right. You know, so that gets preserved, yep. right? So, Wow, I... Wow, that's that's going into my Kung Fu Moism movie. Right. That's going to be in there. And then finally, because there can never be an ancient figure where a modern scholar doesn't propose this about them, but it's possible that Mozart never lived at all and that he's just a composite of various different thinkers at the time that became called the Moists. So that's another idea. Hmm. But we'll go with it that he was a real guy. Yeah. You know, for the sake of not being confusing. So to paint a portrait, he yep. is now he is a... He's a real guy. Mm -hmm. He is dressed in uh, a, a craftsman's uh, like work clothes and apron. Mm -hmm. He wears heavy leather gloves. He has goggles on his forehead that he puts down <laughs> to protect his eyes when he's working on things. Uh, he's got crazy tools in both hands. Huge tattoos all over his face from when he was a slave or a prisoner. And he rides on a dragon and can turn into just about anything. Realistic. So that is our portrait of... Yeah, yeah right. This is a dead idea, so we have to be straight history. Exactly, yeah. to be pure, exactly what it was we're like. We're going with just the facts. Just, <laughs> just the, facts. the facts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, a little that bit about... That could not be Mo Awesome. <laughs> right. I'm not quitting with these. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, a um, little bit about what the Moist school was like, and then we'll cut it for this episode, and then go on next time for Great. the military defense. Okay, so... The school founded by Motsu was more than just a loose circle of like-minded thinkers. In fact, it was actually highly organized and hierarchical. Does not surprise me based on everything I've read. Right. And demanded strict discipline. <laughs> Members would undergo strict training, and then after that they would seek government or military positions. And the Moist organization had enough, they could pull strings and had enough like control over like their own people that they could choose who among them goes to which position. And if you wanted a position, you could ask your higher-ups to find mm. you one, and they'd be like, okay, you're going over to the state of who's it's what. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is also a historical state. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was... You didn't get the tones right, but I think your pronunciation is pretty good. Well, that was one of the more ethnic tribes <laughs> on, the, on the frontier, who's it's what. Right. Members contributed tithies, or dues, to the organization, and presumably that's how they got their scratch to, to you know, to pull other strings. Uh, members could be expelled for failing to live up to the principles of Moism or their duties. 
and they were renowned for fervent commitment to their ethical principles and their austere lifestyle of self-sacrifice. Hmm. Moists were famous for being so disciplined that they would lay down their lives at a command, doing things like walk into fire or like tread on blades, that kind of thing. In fact, the Moist society, as it was organized, was really, you could almost call it a paramilitary organization. Because they were called upon mm -hmm. to come and defend cities, right? Uh, certainly to advise in terms of strategy and possibly also to contribute units. And also they were just organized like a military with a strict hierarchy and you, mm. know, you have to obey because this is how we live our lives. You know, Wait, so when you say they may be called upon to contribute units, do you mean like whole units of Moist soldiers? Yes, but I... What? Yes, possibly. Awesome. But I don't know for sure. It would probably would have been elite units and small. Yeah. But but they would have probably been like well you know, I mean they're I mean we're gonna use it these could be a small things. unit but it's dragon cavalry I mean they ride on dragons <laughs> we've seen that in the historic documents so right. yeah 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 they were certainly drilled in war and tactics and the disciplined warrior spirit and sense of self sacrifice really permeated their entire way of life Mozart's most dedicated disciple was a certain it, it when you read it it looks like Chin Gu Li. But when I plug it into Google Translate, it reads it as Qin Hua Li. Hmm. I don't know if it's accurate because okay. it's Google Translate, but that's what it says. And also, just interestingly, it translated as Slippery Bird. <laughs> so again, I don't know if that's right, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> oh, my God. So this Qin Hua Li, he shows up in a number of the stories in the Moza. He supposedly labored so tirelessly that even Moza took pity on him and is like, dude, you're overdoing it a little bit. <laughs> you need to have at least a little hair left in your calves. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, later he becomes referred to reverentially as Master Chin or Chin Tzu. Because hmm. the Tzu at the end of Moza and all these, that means master. And we'll probably get to hear a little more of them when we get to the Moza text in later episodes. Cool. At some point, it seems the Moist school splits into at least three branches or lineages, each of which considers the others to be heretics. <laughs> um, one of them is called the Southern School, which was likely strong in the state of Chu, which is kind of like Shanghai area. Okay. I, I think I'll cut this out if that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Shanghai, the south part of China. And the names of the other two, which are Xiangli and Dengling, are toponyms, like place names. Okay. So they might have referred to Moist strongholds, oh. but we don't know where they were exactly. Hmm. So it, it's also possible that they were founder names who in themselves had names taken from places. So who knows? Okay. Each of the schools had a jutsu or grand master. And uh, one of the authors that I read actually suggested they may have had some kind of special weird ritual of imitating him in this bid to kind of become the grandmaster and you wear his clothes and you act like him and everything. And we might get to that later in the roleplay episode. Wait, so like the students would act like the grandmaster and dress like him? N not like there... we all as the students of the professor's class are going to act like the professor. It's like, I want to be the next grandmaster. And so I'm going to compete to be the best to imitate him. Okay. To make to actually like basically cosplay him. So, wow, the cosplay theme. I know. Rampant. I know. In China. <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. So I would, if I was the grandmaster, I would have so much fun with that. I would start wearing <laughs> weird stuff. I. Oh my god. Yeah. These yeah. kids. What I, what I'd put them through. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So beyond that, there's not really a whole lot else that we can say with 
even a modicum of certainty about the Moist society or subculture or paramilitary organization or whatever else that you want to call it. But it's enough, at least, to give a pretty distinct sense of their flavor, even if parts of it might be exaggerated. Is there anything else, Andre, that you want to add or ask about before hmm. we close out this episode? And then next time we're going to get to military this stuff. Actually, I have to say I'm just really satisfied because this is a topic I have loved and longed to know more about since mm-hmm. I was like 19, mm-hmm. as I said. And I, I've only ever been able to find snippets about it. Mm-hmm. And I would say in the last uh, month or two of, of research, which has mostly been you and then me just borrowing the things that you found. Yeah. I have learned, and in this in this episode, I have learned more about Moism than I have in the preceding like fifteen years. So, uh, no, I, I this is great. This is wonderful. Yeah. yeah, you should pay me about as much as you would have for a master's degree, and yeah, it'll be about right. I I would, but I've I've already paid for like every. I've, my policy is I try to pay for everyone's master's degree, not just my <laughs> friends and family. Oh, and I've run out of money because I started just. I'm no longer a Moist now. Yeah, I'm like I realize why this philosophy doesn't work. <laughs> yeah Yeah. (laughs) okay well that's probably a good place to end it then thank you for once again for being on the show andre absolutely we'll be back next time and it'll be andre's baby next time he's heading up the next episode and it is going to be bloody it's going to be bloody it's going to be mo deaths mo carnage it's going to be great (laughs) and it's going to be joe punk yes it will be the joe punk castle of horrors yes excellent Folks, if you like what we're doing, if you want us to last that long and without being uh, conquered by some larger state that's trying to muscle in on our territory, you can support the show on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash dead ideas pod. Five bucks a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. You can be drawn with slave tattoos riding a dragon. Oh, wow. <laughs> I might have to give again. <laughs> I'll accept it. I'll accept it. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Hey, everybody. As announced last time, we are thrilled to have signed on with the Recorded History Podcast Network, and the income generated from the ads that will be inserted into our episodes will support making the show better than ever. However, if you prefer to listen without ads, you can always support the show at Patreon, where we'll be posting all of our episodes completely ad-free. And we'll be doing that just as soon as things get rolling with the network here. Likely ads will not appear until spring anyway, so they tell me. But if you're someone who prefers an ad-free listening experience, just go to Patreon. All right, everybody. See you next week. Thank you.